Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 60. I want to apologize, this episode has arrived a little late. The other part of my world, I'm afraid, took precedence this week. So we left off last episode with Swapo's Operation Typhoon underway inside the Triangle of Death, that area between Tsumeb Otavi and Grootfontein. 42 members of this operation have been hidden at Defensa Jana and taken out a rattle. Three were killed by Alouette gunships in the follow-up action, but the others got away, heading northwards to the safety of Angola. Eleven members of the security forces were already dead, about a dozen others injured. This was not a normal swiper assault on the farming area. It was a concerted and well-planned operation. The tactics had changed. There were still 105 other swiper guerrillas on the move in the triangle or nearby, and 61 mech trackers were trying to pick up their trail before they did even more damage. Joining them were a vengeful group of farmers from the Triangle, including the man we met last week, Karlfurt Itzak, and others that writer Dion Lamprecht describes as the Fechnende Bura van Tumeb, the fighting farmers of Tumeb. Others were Dave Kaiser and Reinhard Friedrich, and in her farmhouse at Kudusflei, Tanti Pompey van der Westhuizen, whose husband Dainke had died during the Offensa Shana ambush. At 61 Mech HQ, Roland de Vries was determined to stop Swapo and headed to Tsumeb Aerodrome two days after the ambush to meet reinforcements being flown in. Captain Jan Malan and his Alpha company were back in the field. You can say it's a bit like falling off a horse. His company had seen the rattle destroyed, their men killed, but he and his men had to get back on their horses immediately. No sitting around at 61 Mech HQ at Sinsabas, drowning their sorrows. Swapo wasn't hanging around either. Two days after their successful ambush, they shot and killed a farm worker just north of Tsinsibus, toying with security forces. Here we are, they seem to be saying, come and get us. Then a short while later, rifleman JDG Dutoy died in a contact with Swapo in the same area. It was only a matter of time before Swapo would be spotted. Hundreds of SADF and SWATF troops were sweeping the triangle, while Alouette gunships, Pumas and Bosco planes flew constantly focusing on the water points, the wet chinas. While Swapo obviously had the initiative, the South Africans were piling on the pressure. Tactically, they were trying to push the guerrillas out into the open. Eventually, on the 17th of April 1982, and three days after the ambush at Defence Hashana, Swapo's distinctive chevron pattern boot prints were discovered. The sand trackers and the farmers joined 61 mech units as they hurried along the fresh trail of Russian-made boots. But they weren't going to be in time. The next day, the 18th of April, 67-year-old Tsumeb farmer Louis Fouri was preparing to head to town from his farm called the Remta. The Fouri clan had found the Remta their space, but now it was also a threat. He was isolated, although Louis Fouri was being protected by a single national serviceman by the name of Corporal Hercules Bester, who hailed from Grahamstown. Now the youngster was thousands of kilometers away from home and in a deadly situation. Fouri knew that Swapo were around, he just didn't know how close. Back in Tsumeb, another long-term farmer in the region by the name of Dave Kaiser was meeting with SAD of Top Brass, who had flown in after the disaster at FN Sashana. Sitting alongside with 61 Mech 2 IC, Tais Ral, he had just returned from picking up the bodies from the Rattle 12 Alpha, working alongside two medics. They were being briefed by the farmer Kaiser, who was an extremely fit 52-year-old, and was rumoured he could outrun most of the troopies half his age, trotting non-stop through the sandy bush with his automatic rifle at the ready. 
Meanwhile, Corporal Bester had climbed into the 4x4 being driven by Oom Fri on the farm Reinte, northwest of Tsumib. They were both armed, the SADF troop carrying his webbing and spare magazines dressed in his uniform. What they didn't know was that a Swapo stick of around four was between the farmhouse protective double fence and the workers' houses. Fari's wife, Sinki, was in the farmhouse, sitting near the radio when he left. As the bucky travelled into an area of thicker bush just past the gate, Swapo's stick lying on both sides of the road opened up with AK-47s. Fari and Besta didn't have a chance. The farmer died instantly as the corporal fired back, but that lasted only a few seconds. In the farmhouse, Sinki Fari shouted to her daughters to set off the alarm, which would alert Tsumib as they heard the AKs firing. Then she stumbled out the front door and ran to the fence armed with her G3 automatic rifle and began firing blindly through the bush in the direction of the track. By now she must have realized there was little chance for Louis and the corporal. His R4 had fired for only a second and was then still. In Tsumib, Dave Kayser and 61 Mex 2RC Tace Rahl could hear the voice of Sinki's daughter on the radio. They also heard the G3 automatic rifle going off in the background. They couldn't hear the AKs. Sinki Bana had spotted Swapo in the bush, but they were moving away from her as she continued firing. Then Kaiser and Raal heard the sound of the G3 trigger being pulled. Sinki was out of ammunition, but she quickly changed magazines and opened fire again. The Swapo fighters dragged Fari and Bester's bodies from the bucky, then drove off at high speed, away from the women with the G3s spraying rounds through the bush. There was little that the SADF officers listening back at Tsumeb could do, Another two dead, and Swapo was still on the move. At least the women in Remta farmhouse were in no danger now. They had harried the stick away from the security fence. Commandant Roland de Fris was feeling the pressure. So many civilians dead as well as his own men, and no real success yet against the insurgents. Then came the radio call. Three tours op die plaats Uchiguinas, which was just the other side of Uchikotomir, about 20 kilometers west of Tsumeb. Just out of interest... Uchikotomia means Uchikoto Lake, and it's the smallest of Namibia's lakes formed out of a collapsed limestone cave. It looks a little like a quarry that's been filled with rainwater. A puma took off with Dave Kayser and their Southwest African Special Operations Unit, joined by dogs and a parachute section. When they landed near the mini lake, Kayser was about to point out that they were not on the farm Uchiguinas, but a group of sand then approached him. One had sold oranges to the passing men, then realized they were Swapo and immediately alerted the authorities. One of the sand men approached Kayser and handed him the money, saying it was dirty. Kayser told him to hand it to the police, then asked where the men went. He pointed to a fence. Two Swapo soldiers had climbed over the wire and headed off into the bush. The parabats clambered over the fence following the trail, but now they were moving very slowly. Given what had happened over the past few days, rushing into any possible contact point was plainly stupid. The dogs sniffed the cash, then began following the trail, leading the Parabats and Special Ops team to a thickly wooded area, and it was then that Kayser realized they were in a classic ambush zone. He saw an orange on the path, for a moment thought the bag was split, but obviously Swapo would have picked it up. Then he saw an empty plastic bottle wedged in the boughs of a tree. Scatter, scatter, he shouted in English. The Afrikaans were destroyed, but that doesn't have the same urgency, and their lives dangled in split seconds. What they didn't know as they approached this point in the path was that members of the Swapo stick had got behind the trackers and one was armed with an RPG-7. He fired it at the Puma, which was back in the air, swooping overhead, 
but the missile hit a tree over the security force members. Shrapnel then showered the men, including Kaiser, who was hit in the back. A Casper then burst through the bush. It was Kufut and one of the farmers by the name of Van Bullion, who'd swung around as the RPG went off, spotted the swapper insurgent and shot him dead. Kaiser was wounded but followed the sand trackers as they moved quickly along the trail. The other swapper were nearby. They could feel them. But Kaiser was bleeding heavily and ordered into the puma to be Kazavacked. That's when he looked down at the R1 he was carrying and saw shrapnel embedded deep in the Bakelite stock. When the puma landed in Sumeb, Kaiser refused to stretch and walked into the medical tent where two medics began to pull bits of the exploded missile out of his back with tweezers. He was sewn up, then he threw away his blood-soaked shirt and said, Exrach, I'm ready. Everyone agreed. Dave Kayser was as tough as Camille Durangboom, Camel Thorn Tree. He had to be. There were three or four groups of Swapo lurking inside the Triangle of Death, and another farmer called Reinhard Friedrich was following the trail of one of these groups alongside his sand trackers. Behind Friedrich was a platoon of rattles full of national servicemen, watching as the 50-something worm trotted ahead with the sand. As the trail was leading them towards Platzak Farm, which was a neighbour of Kudusflei, 35 kilometres west of Zinsabis, the German southwester was on a mission, perhaps he was even rushing, and that was a mistake. A second later, Friedrich was lying on his back, and his foot still in its boot was lying next to his head. He had tripped a Pomsey antipersonal mine, the favourite of insurgents everywhere. It has a pin linked to a line which can be set up across a trail. Swapo had laid it so well that the pin and the line were almost invisible. He trotted straight through the line, popping the pin, and the mine had exploded instantly, sending him, the two sand trackers, and shrapnel flying in all directions. Friedrich said later he didn't hear the explosion, but he was conscious and shouted to the 61 mech soldiers to back off. He knew that other mines would be laid nearby to catch the medics. Lying alongside him was one of the sand trackers who'd lost his leg in the blast, while a second was also wounded, lying nearby. By some miracle, Friedrich had both feet at the end of both legs, but one leg was so badly broken it had twisted upwards next to his head. The area was scanned for mines, prodded quickly, then the medics were treating the three. They were all bleeding badly as they waited for the puma. Friedrich passed out. At roughly the same time, Another farmer by the name of Rassi Erasmus triggered another mine that had been planted by Swapo before the Rattle 12 Alpha was blown up five days earlier at Efensashana. The carnage seemed to be never-ending. Erasmus had heard about the events and was determined to head back to his farm Falwater that lay south of 61 Mech's base at Zinsabas, despite battalion commander Roland de Vries trying to stop him. But Rassi Erasmus wouldn't listen. The mine planted on the main road to Falplas had been left by members of Swapo's Operation Typhoon as they swept past, and now it had claimed another victim. Rassi's wife worked at 61 Mech HQ. This was definitely becoming more and more personal. Rasmus was found unconscious behind the wheel of his 4x4. Both his legs were shredded. He was alive and rushed by helicopter to Tsumeb, but the 57-year-old died on the operating table. The killing wasn't over. 25 kilometers west of Tsumeb, another farmer called Bolstein was rushing along his sandy road from his farm Manaus, protected by a national serviceman who was standing on the back. Stain was a sergeant in the local commando, and he had been patrolling the region for years. 
Standing alongside the national servicemen was a sand tracker. Both were keeping an eye out for Swapo or mines or anything else that was a danger. Suddenly the sand tracker spotted what looked like a mound on the road and hammered the roof of the bucky, but Stain didn't stop. The sand tracker jumped off as the mine exploded, throwing both him and the national servicemen into the air. Miraculously, both were only slightly hurt, but Stain had been killed instantly. The mine was a cheese mine, which could blow up a tank. His 4x4 was not mine-proofed, and he had no chance. The next day, 19th of April, another mine was detonated, this time by two preschool children north of the Bravo Cutline on the way to the Angolan border at a place called Mangeti. It's here that the harder ground around Sumeb changes to white sand, thin and dusty, and the thornbush and makalani palms prevail. It's even harder to spot mines here. Both children died. But Swabo was now beginning to run out of time. The follow-up patrols caught six insurgents only 10 kilometers outside Sumeb on the same day, and there were no prisoners taken. Five AK-47s, an RPG-7 and its rocket, seven landmines, six hand grenades, and 15 blocks of TNT were taken from their bodies. Shortly afterwards, 18 Swapo fighters were spotted near a farm called Eitzich on the main road to Otavi, south of Tsumeb. Then another 15 others were tracked after they passed through a farm called Grasflachte, even further south. They had managed to avoid 61 mech patrols and were moving quickly. At this point, though, most of Swapo's platoons decided to splinter, or Gabomshel, as it was known colloquially. They broke up into smaller groups. That was, except for one unit, which headed off towards the ironically named Kombat Bacher, rich in copper, as you heard about in earlier podcasts. It was also where General Louis Bourget had accepted the surrender of the German forces during World War I back in 1915. It's a small world, and as we know, everything in history eventually connects like dots along a continuum. Swapo's specially trained unit used the mountain range, Combat Bach, as a landmark when they navigated through the Triangle of Death and as a place to lay up when the heat was on. There was no way a rattle or vehicle could climb the outcrop, and tracking anyone up the hard stone was impossible even for the best. Swapo would attack local farms or drop mines, then retreat into the Combat Bacher and wait. 61 Mech Intelligence had figured out that a platoon of Swapo fighters were on their way to the mountains, and Commandant de Vries was trying to cut them off before they reached the strategic point. By now, the men in Swapo's platoon heading towards the Combat Bacher had been walking or at times running for close to 700 kilometers. They were exhausted and they needed to stop. They were also likely to make mistakes. Being hunted through the Tsume bush for days on end had a psychological effect on them as they paused, trotted, stopped, laid a mine, trotted, walked, ate, trotted, slept, trotted, paused, etc. It was three weeks of moving non-stop, and for the last week, they thought they'd be shot at every step. This group was heading for the combat bacher, and the Fries was determined they wouldn't make it. So the Fries decided on the nuclear option, so to speak. He ordered the 120mm mortars to bombard the combat bacher, blowing huge flaming balls into the air, thundering and fires breaking out in the ravines. Flying overhead was an eccentric local farmer who prefers to remain anonymous. His little plane was nicknamed the Tickly Tesla. The bizarre contraption had two AK-47s strapped under each wing with a cable to the cabin. He'd also cut a hole in the floor and stuck a pipe into the hole, which meant he could fly the plane with one hand while dropping hand grenades down the pipe with the other. 
This single-engine chitty-chitty bang-bang flew over the combat range with the farmer and an assistant dropping the thunder flashes continuously into the thick wooded ravines. The extreme bombardment, 120mm mortars, automatic fire from the AK-47s on the wing and the thunder flashes going off had their desired effect. But that wasn't all. Another psychological warfare effect involved two rattles. They drove around the base of the combat backer at night, lighting huge fires which could be seen for miles. It gave the appearance of a major army surrounding the copper-rich area, and so the Swapo platoon had to make a decision. The last platoon of Swapo in the Triangle of Death, Gabomshelled, and in the groups of two, three, and maybe six, made a beeline for the Angolan border. But between them and freedom was 250 kilometers of bush and hundreds of motivated South African soldiers, along with sand trackers, backed up by angry farmers. But it must be said the psychological effect was cutting both ways. The farmers of Tsumeb and the officers of 61 Mech were under extreme duress. Tanti Pompey, Daiki van der Vestazen's wife and radio operator extraordinaire, collapsed eventually from the days of stress, lapsing into a coma. She recovered after treatment to hear the news that Dainke, who died in Rattle 12 Alpha, had received South Africa's Honoris Crooks Medal for Bravery posthumously. On May the 1st, all Swapo were reported trying to escape north out of the Triangle of Death. Four were killed on that day, their pockets cleared by 61 Mech Intelligence, who were trying to make sense of who was involved in this deadly operation. On the 2nd of May, Roland de Vries took a drive along the farm road, stopping between Tsintsabas and Oshivelo, which lies to the northwest. Three kilometers south of the Bravo cutline, Alouette gunships had spotted a group of Swapo. They circled, firing continuously, while three Pumas with Parabat sections waited. Minutes passed, then came a farm radio warning that two Swapo had been seen on the farm Falvater once more. 61 McRattles, including de Vries's codename Zero, arrived and the two insurgents were beyond exhausted. They lay out in the open, resigned to their fate. One had a shattered arm, the victim of the Alouette gunships. Their uniforms were in tatters. A puma with medics on board landed and both retreated. Both survived. They were told when they left by their commander Ashipala that there would be no treatment. Now they were being treated by the enemy. This is the story of war inside civilian areas. The Winter Games, as they were known, of 1982, had taught the SADF a harsh lesson. While the farmers of Tsumeb were tough, there was a limit. This was also the most deadly period for these farmers of the entire border war. 72 Swapu fighters had died out of the 105 that made it into the Triangle of Death. 16 were caught, and believe it or not, all 16, according to Dion Lamprecht, ended up fighting for the SADF against Swapo and Fapla. I've explained how professional soldiers act in war, and this is another example. It is perhaps hard to understand how one minute you're shooting at someone who has laid a mine and blown up your brother, and the next you're bandaging the very same enemy. But this is tactical. Every turned fighter is a nail in your enemy's coffin. And remember, for those who speak purely of revenge, there's that great saying, when you seek revenge, dig two graves. Tanti Pompey eventually sold the family farm at Kudusfle and went to live in Swakopmund, her notes and journals full of memories but no hate. It's beautiful in Swakopmund. The cold sea breeze wafts across the desert. 
Dolphus Bay is a short drive to the south. The dune landscape is like the moon. It's a long way from the Tsumeb Thornfeld. Dante Pompey van der Westhuizen died of organ failure in 1996 after suffering from diabetes for years. Her condition worsened by the shock of losing Dunkey. As characters in our story go, she is one of the most memorable, her staunch and stoic voice ringing out across the airwaves, and surely her ghost blows across through the Tsumeb Thornbush when the summer thunderstorms blast their power against the combat Bacher. With that, it's time to haul out the tarpaulin, hang it tight, light a fire, crack open a tafel lager. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps escalate the visibility of the story. If you have any comments, head over to my website, abwarpodcast.com. There's a link to send emails if you want to chat. And you can direct message me if you're in a rush on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.